on the franchisor perspective, our side in terms of royalties, we have a little bit of a different structure. We don't charge a percentage. Typically, you're going to be charged between 5 and 10% of your gross revenue, top line revenue, is going to go to your franchisor as what's called a royalty fee. Uh, we charge a flat monthly fee. So it's either $6.99 for the solo operator or it's $1,200 per month. And that doesn't change by telling the franchise, hey, you should grow, like you should go do a bunch of marketing, you should hire a salesperson. Or now they have to filter that through the thought of process of, oh, well, they're just trying to inflate my top line revenue to get more royalties from me. So we've kind of had that flat monthly fee just to make sure that, hey, our goal is to keep you in business and keep you profitable for a long term. And that's really how we stay aligned with the franchisees. Welcome to another Upflip episode where we interview successful business owners that started from nothing and now live the lives of their dreams. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and today we're interviewing Mike Andes. If you've been following Upflip, you might already know the success Mike has achieved with his lawn care business. He was able to scale his business to seven figures at the age of 24. Currently has 60 franchises across North America. He started franchising only two years ago and has leveraged systems to scale his business to unforeseen heights. Back in February of 2021, Mike was making $133,000 a month with his lawn care business. We'll find out how much his business brings in today. We'll also get to know how you too can start franchising your business and grow it quickly. What are the nitty gritty things that you need to keep in mind? How much does it cost? The different kinds of fees you might have to deal with? How to leverage systems for growth? how marketing for a franchise works, and a whole lot more. You'll also hear some interesting questions from our fans. But without further ado, let's dive right in. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, to start to start us off, uh, if you want to just tell us a little about yourself for those that, that haven't been introduced to you before, and uh, tell us why you started to franchise Augusta Lawn Care. Yeah, I started mowing lawns when I was 11 years old, and I did it to kind of save my way for college. I started when I was really young. I started college when I was 13 years old, and I had plans to become a doctor. So I was like, hey, got to knock this stuff out early. Uh, so saved up for college mowing lawns, went through my undergrad at 18 years old, decided, hey, I'm not going to pursue this medical thing anymore. And I decided I was going to go ahead and scale up the lawn care business. So that's when I started Augusta Lawn Care. I also did my MBA at night during that time when I was 18, and then uh a couple of years ago, we started franchising. So basically just a, a way to scale the business and uh, have now over 60 locations around North America. Incredible. How did you make that first determination that it was a smart move to start franchising? Honestly, it kind of came out of almost necessity. And that was, I knew that we were going to do franchising in the long run. But the reason why I actually pulled the trigger probably a year or two earlier than I thought I was going to was because I knew that I could not keep a lot of the employees that I had currently, the high performers, without giving them more to chew on, like just making it something that's more, you know, harder to achieve than just building up one location into multiple millions. Like that's fine and good, but we're making such good systems. It was like, Hey, it was just copy and paste, copy and paste. Whereas with franchising, it was like a whole nother beast. And it was just something that, that their high level of skill and aptitude was something that I needed to kind of create sooner than I had thought. Yeah. You just mentioned, uh, putting systems in place, uh, and what systems does a business need to have in place before you franchise? Um, and are there any red flags that a business might not quite be ready for, for that move? Yeah, it's funny. I just got back from a conference last week and probably four or five different people came up to me throughout the conference and said, hey, like, I want to franchise my business too. And I think that it is kind of crazy almost to think like, oh, franchising is so easy. I get other people to start the location. They use my brand. They give me a piece of all the money. It's just like super simple. I would say that if anyone wanted to start a franchise and become a franchisor, the number one thing I would say is go start 
a second or third location because you're going to find all the weak points in your mm. business model and where the systems break down when you physically cannot be at every location and be the master juggler like most small businesses owners are. So to think that you have one location now that's super successful and that you're just going to be able to multiply this is really crazy because you are probably the secret sauce to your business. And mm. to know that is like, hey, if I'm not here, there potentially is going to be gaps. And those gaps can't be there if you're actually going to sell your business model as a franchise. So if a if a company is ready to make to make that leap, to make that step, uh, what does the timeline look like? Like how long was it for you between deciding to franchise and getting that first franchise open? And what's that what does that bigger picture timeline look like and what are those steps in the process? Yeah, I would say it's a good year typically. It depends who you talk to in terms of the cost from start to finish. Typically I would say you can do it for a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, other people have say, hey, if you want to do it right, you need half a million. I think it just depends on your level of how much you're going to actually capitalize and try to scale up fast in terms of mm. hiring uh, more admin positions and support roles from the get versus waiting a little bit longer. But typically, you're going to need a few things. You're going to need your franchise disclosure document. You're going to need your operations manual. And then you're going to need your franchise agreement. And typically, your franchise agreement is really just a couple amendments to your franchise disclosure documents. So really, you need an attorney and, a, and someone that's a franchise lawyer. And then you're going to also need typically a consultant, which is I hate paying consultants, but it is useful to have when it comes to franchising because they've done it a hundred times and they can save you a lot of legal issues down the road, just having their advice throughout that whole process. But I would say a good six to 12 months is what it takes from start to finish to get that process up and rolling. And then you got to think about how long is it going to take to get my first few franchises involved uh, because you can't, technically can't market a franchise until it's been set up. Uh, technically, it's against the, the law. So uh, you got to you know, keep a few months in for that time as well. Now that you have a have a process in place, you've obviously done it many times successfully. How long does it take to kind of bring a new franchisee into into the fold and get them their first location? Yeah, the first location, man. I still remember the first one that we sold out in Colorado. That was the very first location we ever sold, and like I literally got off the phone and was like crying. I was like, I just sold like an, another Augusta, like. This, this thing's having babies now, right? Like it was like, you know, it was a pretty cool moment. Um, but it's very difficult. Like I, w I would say is your first 10 franchisees are the hardest to get because you have no proof of concept. You have no track record. There's no one for them to call and validate that you as a franchisor are going to do a good job. They don't know a, you don't have any brand awareness. Like you're nothing. So they're really buying in on you personally, the trust they have for you, really. That's all you got at that stage of the business. And so those first few are very, very difficult. Typically, if you're going to be spending money on ads to try to attract franchisees, you, you might as well be counting on twenty, thirty dollars to $40,000 per location in just advertising and then spending it on a broker, for example. Uh, but if you're going to be doing it yourself, you better have a personal brand that's going to bring in those leads. Uh, and that's how we were able to do it for a much lower cost because I didn't have to go spend money on advertising and brokers. Yeah, that leads me right into kind of this next question. What are some of those most effective ways of attracting franchisees and what strategies have worked best for you and what has, you know, been your biggest fails in that regard? I think the biggest thing is if you don't already have a chain that's pretty sizable. So say for example, you know, a subway. Let's say they had 100 locations corporately before they franchised. That would be fine because 
franchisees would have a lot of dependence on the fact that, hey, there's a hundred of these. I've seen them all in my neighborhood and they'd probably start geographically somewhat more dense. If you don't have that, you don't have already massive amount of locations that are corporately owned. And when I say massive, I say at least 10 or 15 of them. Then I would say that you've got to have one of two things, either A, a lot of capital spent on marketing and then paying brokers, or two, you need to have a personal brand that's going to bring in leads because there's already an audience that is listening to you for advice, listening to you for tips. And fortunately, that's what I had. That's the cheapest route. It's also the most long-term. Like It took a good five years of creating content to create an audience audience that when I had a franchise, they'd actually be willing to buy that because they had that trust built up over those years. So there is no easy way to sell your first few franchises. It's extremely difficult. It costs a lot of money typically. And uh, I wouldn't wor- wish it on my worst enemy. Honestly, some of the worst days <laughs> of my life. Now now that you've, got, you've gone through it so many times, uh, do you find it is easier every time you attract a new franchisee that to get the next one? Yeah, it's absolutely a momentum game, right? With any business, right? If you're trying to get you know, mowing customers as an actual operator, it's the same way. You know, sometimes your first few are so hard to get. You're just trying to figure out estimating, you figure out all the systems and how do I do everything, but you get in the rhythm, right? And so now like we started four or five locations last week. There's just no way I could do that as you know, finding a general manager, buying, you know, finding land, getting all the equipment like that would take massive amounts of infrastructure that the franchising model unlocks to me. However, now, yes, we have the systems in place for onboarding. We have someone else doing the sales. So I don't even talk to them before they get here for training. Uh, so we have much better systems in place, but now we're 60 deep and we can do five, six, seven locations a week. Uh, but at the beginning, it's not like that. It's a much more difficult. You're trying to figure things out and uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> And uh, I, I thank you for for sharing all of that because I know you've shared some of these strategies um, in uh, previous YouTube interviews that we've done with you. Um, but it'll be great. It's been great to hear what's what's working specifically as you're continuing to attract more franchisees. Uh, those of you that haven't seen those YouTube interviews yet, head over to Upflip on YouTube and check out Mike's interviews there as well. Okay, let's play the the game of where we pretend that I'm looking to open a franchise. Uh, what? What's kind of the initial franchise fee? Is that going to cover full costs of opening a new new location? And how much how much variance is there in those costs depending on where we're trying to open this this location? Totally. So we actually have two different models for the franchise. We just started the second one. The first fifty locations were all what we call the growth model, and that's going to be fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for your initial fee. You're going to get a protected five mile radius territory. You're typically going to be scaling very big. Uh, we just started, though, recently what we call a solo operator model. It's only $4,000 for the initial fee, and that's not going to have any protected territory, and you're only going to be able to grow your business up to $20,000 per month in revenue. But it's really for the solo operator, maybe one employee, just to kind of someone that wants to really own a job. They don't really want to scale up to 10, 15 trucks and all the rest of it, and or, or just as a starting point get them in the door, get them started, get cash flow coming in, and they'll graduate to kind of becoming that growth model. And so right now that's the initial fee. And then you're also looking at obviously getting your truck, your equipment, initial spend for marketing. So typically we say, hey, you're going to need between twenty dollars and $80,000 to get one off the ground, really depending if you're going to be a solo operator and start smaller, or if you want to go for the gusto right off the bat and with a couple trucks, a few employees and scale a lot faster. Awesome. And so then kind of taking a look at some of the numbers on the other side of the equation, what's that 
royalty structure for an Augusta Lawn Care franchise location? And what's your average monthly revenue from a franchise? How much does the average franchise owner earn per, per location? You know, obviously everybody wants to know those numbers. Uh, as they look at the investment number, what's what's the return? Yeah. So from a franchisee's perspective right now, our average location is doing around $33,000 per month in revenue. That takes everyone into account. So the people who just started last month, as well as people who have been in business for you know years now. Uh, so, but the blended complete median is going to be 30, it's just over 33,000 per month in revenue. On the franchisor perspective, our side in terms of royalties, we have a little bit of a different structure. We don't charge a percentage. Typically, you're going to be charged between five and 10% of your gross revenue, top line revenue, is going to go to your franchisor as what's called a royalty fee. Uh, we charge a flat monthly fee. So it's either $699 for the solo operator or it's $1,200 per month. And that doesn't change. So it really incentivizes the franchisee to grow and scale the business mm -hmm. instead of keeping it really small. And so we've done that so that we don't have any perverse incentives by telling the franchisee, hey, you should grow. Like you should go do a bunch of marketing. You should hire a salesperson. Or now they have to filter that through the thought of process of, oh, well, they're just trying to inflate my top line revenue to get more royalties from me. So we've kind of had that flat monthly fee just to make sure that, hey, mm. our goal is to keep you in business and keep you profitable for a long term. And that's really how we stay aligned with the franchisees. How did you uh, make the determination to go with that kind of fee and revenue structure? Yeah, great question. So I actually bought an Anytime Fitness uh, franchise a couple years before joining Augusta Lawn Care. So actually, just on the other side of the wall is, is where the gym is at. This is the, where I'm at now is uh, is right next door to the gym. And so I purchased a couple of years prior to starting the franchise with Augusta because I wanted to learn the systems and figure out what worked. And mm -hmm. one of the things I loved about their model is the flat monthly fee. They were one of the first ones to do it. And now there's several other locations, uh, Jimmy John's and different types of franchises that do set flat monthly fees, not a percentage or royalty. And I felt like it was the best way to be able to align the franchisor and the franchisee. For example, like Subways, they always have massive amounts of litigation with their franchisees because they do this whole you know, $5 foot long thing. Well, the problem is if they're running a 15% margin on that offer and 10% of it's going to the franchisor, they're gonna, the franchisees are not going to be happy. And mm -hmm. so I, I think I settled on the fact that, hey, I want to be as aligned with my franchisee as possible. When I give them advice, they know it's coming from I want them to succeed, not that I want them to temporarily inflate their top line revenue. So that was really uh, something that I had to come to. And it was not easy because there was a lot of attorneys and consultants that would say, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Like You want to participate in the upside as they grow. And I understand that logic, but I also understand the fact that just inflating top line revenue does not mean a successful business. And so uh, that's really why we decided to stick with the flat monthly fee. Now, tell us a little bit more about the the kind of individual franchise owners. Um, did you, are, are these primarily people that you reached out to? Did they come to you? Um, how are you finding those potential owners and how are the potential owners finding you? Yeah. So kind of like I talked about at the beginning, like either A, you're going to have a strong brand already. B, you're going to have an outbound strategy where you're going to do advertising. You're going to pay a broker's commission because there's people out there that literally are actively looking for potential business owners and then trying to sell them franchise concepts and you pay them a, a commission, usually ten dollars to $20,000. Uh, or three, you have an inbound strategy where people come to you. And that's really what we were able to focus on because I already had the podcast, Landscape Business Course, Lawn Care Media, all the stuff I do in the lawn care industry. So up to this point, we've never spent money on ads or any sort of outbound. It's been, hey, whatever sort of leads come in, those are the ones that we take the calls, we filter through and decide if they're a good fit. Um, so 
to this date, we've never done any sort of outbound strategy. It's only been from our audience that contact us. And then how do you vet those potential franchise owners? And what are you, what are you looking for in an ideal franchisee? Up until the first 50 franchisees, I was the first point of contact. They would actually set up a call with me just to see if they were a good fit, see if it was right for their business. And honestly, one out of eight is the percentage that we would actually accept into the franchise. So that means seven out of eight, we either didn't think it was good for their business, didn't think they were the right fit for the culture of what we were trying to do at Augusta Nation. And so that's a that's a lot of time and effort just filtering all those calls. So recently now we have a full-time uh, person that's onboarding and sales, and that's Lee, who's been with us for a long time already and kind of knows the concept. And what we're looking for really is, I don't really get involved in that conversation. It's really up to Lee. He knows the type of a franchisee that we're going to do work well with. And honestly, it's a matter of like asking yourself, like, will I want to work with this person, right? Will I want to hop on a call with this person every month and ask them how their business is doing? Do I care about this person and they're more, do they have the same uh, values that we at Augusta Nation have? If not, we've had it multiple times, people hopping onto a Zoom call and they're, you know, going through a pack of cigarettes, right? Probably not going to be a level of professional that we want to impute on this industry uh, or people mm-hmm. cursing about their their employees or their customers. Like that's not going to work well with our culture. And that's the first red flag that we're going to probably filter them out. Do you have a, a one location per owner policy? Do you have franchisees who own multiple locations? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of multi-unit owners? Yeah. So um, like for me, uh, my goal is that they're, it's copy and paste, right? Figure mm-hmm. one location out typically and take you a few years and then copy and paste. And the system should be able to be where I get a general manager, I send them to us here at corporate for training, and I can go start a second location. And it doesn't even be next to me. It could be on the other side of the country. So I personally have had up to four locations. I currently have three uh, corporately owned or that I own and I have general managers. And that's the model. It's like, hey, simplify the systems, have everything running on systems so that way I can copy and paste this wherever I want. And so we got what's really cool is we have three of our owners that are just starting their second location this coming spring. And so we're two years wow. in to be able to have three of them starting their second location is pretty cool. And they, I think the goal for most, most owners is to have multiple locations down the road. And the challenge with that is you've got to be de- depending on systems. You cannot be a strong owner that has a great personality and expect that your other locations are going to do well. Now it comes down to, can you manage managers, right? That's a whole different game. Can you make sure that they're empowered to hire? They're empowered to make buying decisions. And sometimes you're going to lose out. Sometimes a manager isn't going to work out. But it's a matter of managing the managers becomes a completely different job description than I as the owner being there every day and juggling everything in the business. How do you prepare uh, new franchise owners for that role? And what are the most important components of an effective franchise owner training operation? Yeah, that was a big reason why I actually joined Anytime Fitness before starting Augusta Lawn Care as a, as a from the franchising standpoint is because I was like, man, what what's expected of me as a franchisor, especially at training? And so I'm pretty confident now because I know what Anytime Fitness is a massive company that has, you know, 5,000 locations and is ranked high on Entrepreneur Magazine's, you know, for, uh, Franchise 500. I compare kind of, a, hey, what are they doing versus versus us? Like, what's our level of support versus them? And I feel pretty confident about that. And so it was really good for me to see another franchisor that's been successful and be able to kind of mirror slash why are their franchisees mad? Like what gets them unhappy? Mm. I, as a franchisee, what am I unhappy about in terms of communication, in terms of updates, uh, in terms of pivoting quickly and changes to the, the model? Um, and so using that has been very, very valuable uh, as as we've started Augusta. And so the training part, yeah, absolutely. Like 
you know, they, they had two weeks of training and I still remember thinking like, man, I could have jammed this into like two or three days. I was so bored by the end of two weeks because it was so, so basic and so many principles that were just not needed in my opinion. And so that was one of the core principles like, Hey, we want people to come here for three days. It's going to be high intensity, extremely dense, but it's not going to be two weeks where by the end, they're not even comprehending it because it's been so long and so like a, a marathon of learning. So just learning from them. And then the, from an onboarding and training standpoint, realizing that people have schedules and business owners are already busy. I don't want to have them here for two weeks learning about, you know, how to shuffle index cards on their desk. It's like, here's the principles, here's the systems, and you're going to learn this even more as you grow. Do you have any uh, ongoing training requirements for your franchise owners and or like, how are you checking in with them and making sure that people are still getting the same level of service that they they should be expecting from Augusta? Yeah, it's only improved because obviously at the beginning, I was the person doing that. Now as Lee has, has been the person that's you know working on the sales, but also reaching out to franchises, they're underperforming. If someone has a drop in revenue, like why did that happen? Let's contact them. Being more on mm-hmm. the offensive and trying to figure out the issues within each location before it becomes a big catastrophe and I am involved because, you know, we, we lost half of our customers or five of our employees walked off the job. Like we should be able to catch those issues way before. So we're just trying to be more on the offensive in terms of looking at the metrics every month and seeing what are the indicators of, of a potential cataclysmic event, right? Or someone failing or someone not doing as well as they usually are, and then trying to target them directly with a call. Uh, obviously, we have monthly coaching calls with each of our franchisees, but if they miss those, for example, that's a red flag. If we don't hear from them for three months, like that's a big red flag. Mm-hmm. We want to be hopping on a call with them and just like, hey, we're just checking in. We're trying to support you as much as we can. We know you're busy, uh, but usually if we don't hear from them for three or four months, it means they're going through something you know, personally or in the business, and we kind of need to help them through that process. How important is that brand and culture consistency across franchise locations? That's the hardest thing. That's why a lot of people will not get into franchising. If you look at successful franchisors over time, a lot of them struggle at the beginning with consistency, right? Making sure that, you know, the restaurant looks the same, the trucks look the same, you know, depending on what industry you're talking about, that thing, there is some consistency in terms of customer service, in terms of the systems, in terms of pricing. Uh, and, you know, companies like Dairy Queen always, almost went out of business because it was so inconsistent. There was no brand standards. And so I feel like, communication is the most important thing when it comes to a franchise or a franchisee relationship. It's the thing that bugged me the most over the past couple of years with Anytime Fitness when COVID was happening. And literally we had, I had nine different points of contact changed through the course of a year. And I've never been contacted by them for the past year and a half, right? That's, wow. It's pretty bad as a franchisee to have to say that, but that's the truth. And so the communication is what the breakdown was. And that really was a negative for me as a franchisee. And so knowing that as we look at our franchisees, I'm like, hey, we have to be on the offensive about communication, which is every week, maybe every two weeks, we're doing update videos. We're sharing what's changing, what's improving, what metrics, where's the franchise going? What changes are we making at corporate, at command center, where we take their calls and we do a lot of their admin work? So that communication element is the thing that I've learned the most and still improve, trying to improve on. But it is the fundamental flaw, I think, with many franchisors that fail is their inability to communicate with franchisees, even about stuff that's ugly. Because like, guess what? You're running a business too. Those are going to be things that you mess up on. And we've had plenty of them. But communicating that is extremely important and not just ghosting your franchisees. What happens uh, when a franchise owner wants to sell their location, whether they, they want to retire or, or whatever reason? Does the franchise agreement include an exit plan or is that something they'd need to negotiate with you? 
Absolutely. Um, so we always have it where they can actually submit a form to us and give all their financials and pictures of their assets and all the rest. And then we would actually advertise that as a location for sale. So we actually just have our very first one uh, coming up here in the next couple months that is needing to move their family across the country. And so they're needing to put their location up for sale. So that is already built in the franchise agreement. Hey, you're able to transfer this. And then that new franchise, you would come on as an owner, they'd come for training and all that's kind of baked into the whole uh, system already. Awesome. So Mike, this brings us to a a section of the show that we're calling our Fan Blitz questions. These have come from our YouTube channel, uh, which again, if you haven't checked that out already, make sure you do that. uh, Upflip on YouTube. So I'm going to give you some rapid fire questions here. 20 seconds each answer. Um, Here we go. So BK is asking, when do you stop and rest? Uh, You have so many business ventures that he doesn't see when you slow down to rest. I don't know. Like some people would say that you can rest once you're six feet under the ground, but um, I would say that it's every person needs to just be self-aware in terms of what they can handle and what their goals are. And I think your ambition uh, should definitely align with the level of work ethic you're willing to put in. And I have some pretty big ambitions, and therefore the amount of work I put in should really be that high. So Richard's got a, a multi-part question here. So here we go. Uh, what are the most important financial aspects for starting a business to focus and emphasize on? And how big of a role do each of them play? And what advice can you offer to someone who is starting a business solo? Yeah, so the first two questions are kind of self-same. I would say marketing and hiring is going to be the thing that you need to focus on if you're going to grow, right? So everything besides marketing and hiring, or you could say sales and hiring, is going to be minutia. You need to delegate those things off, get them off your plate. In terms of the solo operator, what you want to focus on is what can I do to make sure that as a high percentage of my time is spent in the field working because that's when you're actually making money as a solo operator. And so you don't want to be spending half your day doing things like answering the phone and email. Delegate that out, get a virtual assistant, whatever you got to do, and focus on generating more revenue. Serge is asking us, is asking you, uh, what does his, what does your workday look like? Honestly, it's kind of all over the place. I don't, I'm not very routinized, partly because I don't have a, a, you know, a spouse or kids. And so I know that creates where you have to have more framework. For me, it's like, hey, I work really, really late at night typically because that's when everyone else is offline and I can get a lot more done and I record and things like that. Uh, and then I just wake up whenever, you know, before the first meeting. So it's very unroutinized, unfortunately, very un, un, uh, cool in the, in the entrepreneurial land to say that. <laughs> Uh, no, no, uh, 4 a.m. alarm to to read the wisdom of Aristotle as of yet. That's usually, that can be usually sometimes the bedtime alarm, but yeah. not necessarily waking up. Uh, Tyler Ball is asking uh, what what you do during the off season. Is it uh, is you know running a landscape business a four month hustle? For some people, it is, and they they really enjoy the fact that you can work for six, seven, eight months out of the year and then take the winter off and lots of flexibility and for vacation. Uh, For us, we try to focus on what we call winter services, where we try to upsell existing customers that are mowing and just say, hey, look, we're going to come throughout the winter. We're going to keep trimming your bushes, pulling weeds, doing other services on their property besides mowing lawns, and try to create as much recurring revenue throughout those slow months as possible. And really, it's just to keep, try to keep the guys busy. That's really what it comes down to. Our goal is to retain the employees and do what's best for them and not just have to make them go out and figure things out by themselves. But that's really the main goal is just create recurring revenue throughout those winter months. And then uh, I, I'm sure you get this question all the time as well. A number of people have asked how you were able to go to college at the age of 13. Yeah. So um, my brother's two years older than me. 
And he started kindergarten when he was five. So I was three at the time. I just sat there because like me and my brother did everything together, played baseball together, everything. So when he was sitting there learning his alphabet and learning how to read, I did too. So I was really young there. Uh, then I actually went to kindergarten and I was so small. I'm still really short. I'm like five, less than five, five. Let's give it five, four and a quarter. Um, but I'm pretty short and I was back then. So my mom held me back actually years. So I technically did kindergarten like three times when I was three, four, and five. So it really gave me a solid base. And kind of from then on, I was always kind of the first in the class. And I skipped grade seven, did grade nine and 10 in one year at home, and then uh, did grade 11 and 12 while I was doing my first two years of college. Uh, so that's kind of the, the condensed version. I love it. I love it. Great. Those are the fan blitz questions. So again, uh, head over to our YouTube channel, Upflip. Uh, from there, you can, if you leave a question in the comments, we'll, we'll probably bring it into a future podcast. So make sure you do that. All right. Uh, shifting back out into some more questions about the franchise process. Uh, how do franchises get their equipment and supplies? Are those coming from a central warehouse? What systems do you use to manage operational inventory on a national scale? Totally. A lot of times what you want to keep in mind is that franchisors actually make most of their money typically on this part of the business. And that is requiring you to buy certain things. So for example, Subway makes most of their money, not on the royalties, but on the fact that they dictate that you buy everything from them so they can mark those materials up to their franchisees so what we have you know very deliberately done is hey we do not have supplies that you have to buy from us we do not have vendors that you have to purchase from because we want to make sure it's what's right for the business so if you have a dealer that's closer to you and they sell a certain type of brand of mower and you like that dealer you should use them you should not use the one brand that we dictate and we're getting a cut of on the back end so mm -hmm. We're very, very open with our franchisees if we ever are making a cut on something with a preferred vendor. But typically, 99% of the time, we're going to make sure that all the discount is given to the franchisee if we have any sort of a volume discount or a national account with a preferred vendor. So just keep that in mind if you are becoming a franchisee. If they are going to govern your supply chain and what supplies you buy or what equipment you buy, just know that usually that's actually where their money is being made. And then what ongoing support are you offering to franchise owners and how, how have you been setting up those systems and, and how do those systems evolve over time? Absolutely. As time goes on, it evolves. It really comes down to the fact that the locations are growing in size and they're going to be encountering completely different thoughts and objectives and hurdles. They're going to be thinking about long-term hiring and finding general managers and where do I take all this cash that I'm making and where do I invest that? That's a completely different conversation than when you're first starting out. Like, where's my first 20 customers? Totally different conversation. And so that level of support has to evolve as a franchisor to your franchisees and grow with them. Right. And so the people that are on those, you know, franchise business consultants, for example, that give those coaching calls, they have to know what they're talking about if they're talking to an owner that's doing multiple millions in revenue, has multiple locations. So you just have to realize your support has to evolve with the with the franchise as it does grow. Uh, otherwise the franchisees will definitely uh, be be negatively impacted. Based on some some other things you've said earlier in this interview, I this sounds like it's evolving. Uh, but how hands on are you with the franchise side of the business, and what what percent of your work hours are focused on franchising? Yeah, not too long ago, most of my day was actually spent one on one with franchisees, with coaching calls, etc. Um, and it just came to the point where it's like, look, I don't want to work for a, a franchisee for just one hour uh, a month on a coaching call. I want to work for you guys forty hours a week because I'm out trying to create brand deals and get discounts for you. And I'm trying to improve the systems and we're building a bunch of software. So my time is much better spent working for all of them all day than just trying to work one-on-one. -on -one. And that that's a tough break, 
uh, because it, it somewhat does remove you from the front lines. And so it's important to have middle management to be able to communicate directly through and get feedback and data from uh, so you know what's happening on the front lines. But it definitely evolved as it's grown because, it, like I said, I would I could spend all my day just contacting franchisees and talking to them. But that's not going to move the brand forward, it's not going to help them get more brand deals and discounts and improve the systems at command center and improve and test marketing for them next spring. Those are the type of things why they bought in the franchise for. And so I got to stay on that cutting edge, which is not easy for me necessarily because I really do enjoy that one-on-one contact. How many uh, employees do you have working on the back-end side of the franchise operation? And what what kind of roles are they are they filling? And what did you look for in those employees? There's already over 20. Um, and most of those are consistent people at command center. So they're going to be ones answering the phone, taking emails and doing payroll for the franchisees. And we just do a whole host of admin office backend work. Uh, in terms of direct franchise business consultant, there's really three or so that I lean on heavily that have a lot of more strategic decision-making process with the franchisees uh, in terms of hiring or if they you know, something's burning down, they know who to call in terms of a business consultant. And so uh, right now it's about three or four of us that focus on that. That will again have to just grow. And obviously with a set monthly fee, we kind of know how much the cost per franchisee is. And we have to make sure we balance that out just to make sure we're sustainable. Did your customer facing marketing strategy change when you shifted from being a local business to a national franchise? And uh, what advice do you have for a small business attempting to build a national brand? Yeah, totally. So like you absolutely have to shift because for example, in our industry, it's not like a restaurant that you control the environment. So when I take pictures on marketing, I'm outside, I'm going to show trees and mountains and the climate and the type of houses that are built, which can really isolate you from the fact that you can't use a cactus all around the country, <laughs> right? You can't use like in our market, we have the ocean, we have the Rocky mountains. We can't use those pictures in our marketing. Um, and so as the brand grows and evolves, you have to somewhat be more vanilla, which can take away some of that homegrown kind of home feel approach. And I would say that what we've done to counteract that is we do not do the actual ad placement for our franchisees. They have the ability to take the resources that we give them, copy and paste basically from the tutorial, but it gives them some flexibility to add their own creative in. So that way, if they do wanna be in front of the city's number one tourist attraction with their camera taking the video, they can do that to make it more localized. And I think that's a big problem with franchisors and just national brands in general is it's tough to actually place ads for an entire network without becoming extremely vanilla. And so that's why we do not take a uh, a marketing fee as a franchisor because we're a big advocate that the franchisor knows their market the best. And they know that this one neighborhood is 10 times more valuable than the other five around. So why would I as a franchisor say, hey, we're going to run this massive campaign in your whole five mile radius when they're like, hey, no, I only want customers in this one mile radius because that's where my best customers are at. So I think localized marketing is the best approach. And the, the more localized you can make your marketing, the better. Do you have, uh, do, do the local franchises each, you know, is that the operator that's making marketing decisions? Do they all have a marketing person on staff? How is that, that working? And what is, the, what is sort of the, the central office recommendation on that? Yeah, so we generate uh, what we call done-for-you ads all for, for the major platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Google, Nextdoor, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have templates that they can use in terms of creative, like picture and video, as well as text. We have a, a video walking them through how to set that ad up 
but we are not going to place the ad for them and put money behind it. That way they can determine how much money they're spending. If they get a massive contract, they might literally want to go into their ads and just turn them all off because now they're just struggling with the capacity. And so we really try to put as much emphasis on that as possible. And my goal too, in part, is for them to know that stuff. I don't want to just be like, hey, there's this curtain and behind it, we do all your marketing. I want them to actually know how to put a Facebook ad up, know how to do a Google ad, know how to look at their metrics. And that's part of what makes Augusta a little bit different is we focus a lot on the learning and the, the education side, not just like, hey, just give us your money and we'll make a great business for you. There's not a lot of value to that because you can't go replicate that. But if I can give you the skills on how to run an ad, and then we on the back end are running and testing things to see what works, that's going to be the best model, in my opinion. You've now got locations in both the U.S. and Canada. Uh, are there any extra challenges that come with doing business across national borders? And what kind of legal and logistical steps uh, did you have to go through to to make that leap into being an international company? Oh, man, like it's I don't know if I would have done that as early as we did. Um, to be honest, because I think our 11th or 12th location was a Canadian franchise and it's difficult. It's a completely different set of laws. Uh, every single province and state for that matter literally has different franchise laws. So you have to register your business in every single state. Uh, there's a there's 13 of the states that are even more difficult to call registration states to set up as a franchisor. A lot of our costs are legal. A lot of our costs are registration uh, and paying attorneys. And when you went to Canada, when we went to Canada, there's no there's no difference. It's just incredible amounts of paperwork, expense, and we will not be profitable on Canadian franchisees for a very long time because not only that, but you also have the fact that you have an exchange rate that cuts everything down. And we have allowed them so far, at least, to use the Canadian dollar as their standard. Uh, and so. There's been a lot of hurdles. It's, it's not easy, but I think our goal is to make it accessible. And we just know we're going to eat costs on the Canadian side for probably at least a few years. And then when you were learning about uh, the franchise process, what were your go-to resources? And and today, where do you go when you have questions or need advice? Good question. Um, first, getting started, conferences are great, right? So there's the franchise expos. They have them. Se they have several around the United States every year. They'll have actual franchisors that are trying to pitch their ideas, but then they'll also have class classes that you can go to and learn from attorneys and accountants all about the whole system and consultants. And so learning all of that. So I went to several of those, uh, read several books, uh, but now it's challenging. Honestly, I don't really have a template. Uh, I don't have anyone that I ask like, hey, you have 500 locations. What do you think about this? The reason for that is because there is literally a small, small percentage of franchisors that ever get past 100 locations. So to have access to that person is typically going to be a CEO of like a publicly traded company or very high in a private equity firm. And it's hard to get a hold of them, honestly. So I'm really looking from an external standpoint at companies like Subway, like McDonald's. I'm analyzing their business model. Where did they have hurdles? Where were their issues? And that's what I'm really trying to use now uh, because I'm past the whole like how to start a franchise. It's a matter of how do I get to 500 and like where are the, the roadblocks going to be from now till then? Because getting from zero to 10 franchisees, very difficult, but you have to change your whole business model to get from 10 to 50. And then to get from 50 to 500, total different business model, right? But the, econ the, the chances of getting above 100 franchisees mm is like literally a couple percentage points. So the idea that people are just gonna like, I'm gonna start a franchise, get a FDD, throw us a couple documents together, cover a couple hundred grand and we're good to go. And I'm just gonna become super successful and roll in royalties is crazy. Most, most franchisors fail and then their franchisees are collateral damage to that failure. To wrap this up, uh, tell us about your franchise goals for 2022 and uh, a recent favorite business book that you read. 
Oh, cool. Recent favorite business book would definitely be uh, from the owner of Walmart, uh, from um, Walton, uh, uh, Mr. Walton. A great book for scaling, great for just out-of-the-box ideas and just honestly really just fundamental business principles that are kind of overlooked in the modern society of raising capital and being really flashy with technology. So really like that book. Um, in terms of next year's goals, honestly, like we know we want, we want to be, you know, thousands of locations. Like I think I've always said 500, but over the past year or so I've said, Hey, we can get, we can definitely get past a thousand, uh, and become, you know, maybe one day take it public. But, uh, I think next year, the goal, if I, I'd be really happy if we get about 150 locations uh, next year. Fantastic. Well, we'll be, we'll be watching you along the way to, to see as you get there. And we'll, we'll sure we'll have you back for much more advice as you, as you learn and grow in that way. Folks, that's going to do it for us for this episode of the Upflip podcast. Uh, make sure you check out our YouTube channel as well, Upflip, uh, and our blog where we interview and share some useful resources and tools for business owners. You can get catch that by going to upflip.com slash blog. And make sure you share and spread the word about our podcast to help us grow and continue to create this content for our fans and listeners. Make sure you tune in every Monday morning for a new episode. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Alex. You have a good one. 